Thank you, worship team, very much. We've got a special treat for you today. I want to introduce Rosie Cannonball. Some of you don't know, like, who is she, all right? Well, Rosie's been a longtime member of New Life since 2004, and uh, Rosie actually has a, uh, came on staff at one point, uh, was part of our pastoral team, part of our preaching team, uh, made a, a wide impact. Uh, she's brought and brings just tremendous gifts, lover of God, equipper, teacher, preacher. Uh, and then God led her to uh, Madison, Wisconsin, to join uh, Holy Wisdom Monastery. Now, it's not every day that one of our pastoral staff leaves to join a monastery. Uh, but Rosie is a wealth here for us as God's been leading her and teaching her. We really wanted to give her a Sunday to share. So I'm calling today Lessons from the Monastery and uh, with Rosie. So Rosie, welcome. Thank you. We love you. We're so glad you're here. And uh, let me just frame our time with this passage when Jesus is in Mary and Martha's house in Luke chapter 10. And you're going to notice in this passage there is a tension between Mary and Martha, their sisters. And Martha is the active one who is busy taking care of the food and the preparations and the dishes, making sure the house is clean, you know, serving Jesus. And then you've got Mary who's sitting at his feet. And Martha gets upset, annoyed, uh, and then you'll see in just a moment, she tells Jesus what to do. Uh, and, but this is a very famous passage for many different reasons uh, and has been all through church history. But it brings out today a theme that we talk a lot about at New Life Fellowship, but one that uh, I think Rosie uniquely can speak to us about. So let me just read the passage here before we begin. She, uh, that's Martha, had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. And if you read history, in every generation, uh, church leaders and theologians have written about how all of us have to struggle with the tension between Mary and Martha inside of us. That there's a part of us that wants to sit at Jesus' feet like Mary and listen to him. And that's the most important thing of all. But at the same time, we're all active. We're involved in life. We're doing things. We're working. We're serving. You know, we're using our gifts. And so, you know, we have these two circles. You know, for many of us, we have an activity circle. Uh, we're doing so much, but we don't have a contemplative life, a Mary life, a being with God life to sustain everything we're doing. And so we often feel like we're empty, we're, we're kind of, I like the arrow, our life just feels a little bit like out of balance, something's just not right. And, and a challenge for us as a church, for every one of us, and we're always trying to do it new life here, is we want to be both Mary and Martha. We want to each be anchored in Christ. We want to be, we want to have enough being with God, roots with Jesus, to sustain what we do in life for God. And that great challenge with the local church is really all about. And uh, so I think it's a nice text for us to frame our time together. And so with that, Rosie, why don't you just tell us a bit of your story? How did you end up as a New Yorker uh, at a monastery in Wisconsin? (laughs) All right. Let's take this complicated story and try to condense it. But um, I was raised in New York from the time I was eight uh, and then went down to Philadelphia to go to law school. Came back in 2004 to practice law here. I started as a public defender at the Legal Aid Society and was working as a lawyer for seven years. Um, I'm born in an uh, Indian family. My folks are immigrants, first generation Indian here. Raised Christian, 
um, but became a more committed Christian in college. Um, and so in 2004, when I came to New York, I started at the Legal Aid Society, but I also started here at New Life Fellowship, because I'd heard it was a great church and found that to be true, um, and stayed here for the entire time that I was here in New York. But I took a sabbatical seven years into my job. Uh, and that was because it was exhausting. Um, and there was a point where well, let me see. Let me let me also say that my work as a public defender I saw as a part of my calling, as part of my Christian calling. Um, the same way that Jesus advocates for us, um, I always felt as though being a public defender was a way of living out my Christian life by advocating for those who are poor, who were not heard, um, and who were not seen by the legal system. And so let me let me say that my work felt as though it was a mission. Um, and a call for me. So when I took the sabbatical, there was already an issue for me in terms of, is this what God is really calling me to? And how can I use my sabbatical to be able to really make the next leap of commitment toward being a, a really, really excellent public defender? During the year, I uh, started working with a spiritual director, a nun from the Senegal in Ronkonkoma. Some of you may know about this convent, but um, I went out there for retreats, and every week we met, we prayed together, we read scripture together, um, and we considered what God might be calling me toward. Was it being a public defender, or was it maybe to something more, or something different? Um, and having her support was really important during that year. Um, but at the end of that year, uh, I didn't know where God was calling me to, there was just a sense that at this point my career as a lawyer was ending, which was really, really difficult because my identity and my work had become so fused that during that year of the sabbatical, the major crisis was, who am I if I'm not doing this work that I felt was so important in the world? Um, and, and that continued, but at the end of my sabbatical, New Life sort of stepped in and said, we don't think you're done with your discernment, and we have heard that you're interested in monastic life, and you guys took me on staff to be a pastor of contemplative arts here. And during that year, I continued meeting with my spiritual director, and at the end of that year is when I went to the monastery, and that was because I felt as though I was responding to a deeper call to deepen my roots in the monastic life in order to be able to offer that to the world. Okay, and so um, there's a picture of the monastery. So you've been there now for, uh, you know. Three years. Three years. Yeah. And there she is. She's in the prairie. In the prairies uh, of Wisconsin. <laughs> uh, and so uh, tell us about your, your the, the uh, let's, just jump, let's, jump, let's jump for a second, stages of commitment. So what you, where you are right now, and then we'll come back to, you know, and how this thing works when you, when you go into a monastery. So I made my first profession in September of last year. So I've been a sister at uh, Holy Wisdom Monastery for just under a year now. But I came as a postulant or a sojourner. That is a year of just exploring what monastic life might look like, and that was living with the sisters, living out the daily schedule, um, and trying to kind of live into the daily experience of what does it mean to live at a monastery, and what does it mean to develop my prayer life in this community and in this place. After that year, I decided to become a novice. Uh, I actually, I came here before I made that commitment and talked with you about that decision. Um, and when I became a novice, that's usually about a year, and that is a more formal commitment. Uh, but it's still, just as a novice, you're still a newcomer. You're still figuring things out, and that's right there in the title. After that is first profession, and that's where I'm in right now. And that's a period of three to five years of ongoing discernment and deciding whether or not this is a lifetime call. At the end of those three to five years, you make something called final profession, and that's the lifetime commitment. So, I mean, in the stages of like dating, getting engaged, you know, like getting married, walking down the aisle, that's kind of the way that the monastics look at also joining a monastery. So just understand that, you know, we have a process at New Life Fellowship. You come to New Life Fellowship, you, you start attending, you go to newcomers, and you go to communitas, uh, you become a member. I mean, do you understand, like, this, we're talking, Rosie, we're talking uh, seven, six to eight year process At here. least, yeah, at least. Okay, wow. All right, now, now tell us, let's go back for a second about um, marriage to Jesus mm -hmm. and celibacy and how you see that. Uh, because among other things that happened when you, when you left New York, and I remember you leaving staff here, First of all, you got rid of all your money. You, you, you were just you're giving everything away. And I was like, oh my gosh. You know, we were all kind of like, you know, IRAs, your furniture, and the apartment. Mm -hmm. And we were all kind of like nervous for you. Um, at the same time, uh, you were moving towards what we call vocational celibacy. Now, 
Um, we're all married to Christ at New Life, marriage and singles, but we live out our spirituality either as married or singles. Now, singles, there are two categories of single people here in our midst. We've got uh, what we call dedicated celibates. A uh, dedicated celibate is someone who uh, feels called to be married uh, or is open to be married uh, at some point. So they're dedicated, but they're celibate for Christ. Then there are the few, very few, that Jesus talked about that are vocational celibates, uh, which really comes out of this text in Matthew chapter 19. Paul was a vocational celibate, the apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about that. But Jesus says, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it's been given. So it's very few have been given this. And that is, some are eunuchs, or we'll call them celibates for now, who are born that way. Others eunuchs have been made eunuchs by others. Uh, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. So there are few who feel called by God to uh, not marry, but in a sense skip marriage to go right to the eternal marriage of Jesus, of oneness, uh, for the sake of the kingdom of God. And uh, Rosie, just talk to us a minute about what celibacy is um, and then what that has meant for you as you in this process of, of joining the monastery and discernment. Celibacy. Okay, so the sort of quick de definition of celibacy, I, I probably everyone understands, is not engaging in a physically intimate relationship with someone. But that's like the barest minimum of celibate living, just as marriage is just like, okay, I'm married to one person, right? Um, for me, celibacy also means freedom to love all people as Christ, right? So in the marriage calling, you're called to, to love one person very, very well. And through that love, hopefully, that also teaches you how to open up to, and love the world. And that relationship feeds that. For me, it looks a little different in that I love the one, Christ, in order to be able to love the world, right? And so it kind of, it's got the same direction toward the world, but different ways of being able to live that out. So, and for me, celibacy is also a gift. So I want to say that, as Pete said, it is not common, but it's not unusual um, and not, not normal, you know? So there are various people, I think, who experience different gifts of the Spirit. For me, the gift of celibacy, I think I experienced it rather early in my 20s, where I realized that I could be very happy living singly, and I could be a very loving, generative person um, in the single life. The question of whether or not I would live as a dedicated celibate versus a vocational celibate, now that is a ongoing discernment, right? For me, I believe that I am a vocational celibate. Not only do I have the gift, but it's a real joy to be able to live it out. So those two things are really important when you're discerning that particular gift. Does it give you joy? Does it make you uh, more free to be able to love the world? Because the last thing I think a monastic or a celibate would want is to just sort of put that on somebody. It's not always a natural yoke for everybody. And for me, my celibacy, I'll say, I'm 39 years old, right? So my celibacy when I was 20 or in my early 30s, or I'm, as I'm 39 and now looking at my 40s and realizing I'll never be able to have a baby, you know, just because there's certain realities about my body. Celibacy and the commitment to celibacy changes in the same way that marriages change over the first, you know, 10 years, 20 years. You love your spouse in different ways, your body changes in different ways, and that commitment also shifts over time. And it's just natural and normal. And I think it's an important thing to talk about since celibates don't have a lot of mentorship in this area, and even when I was younger, and trying to figure out what does celibacy actually look like, it was really hard to find anybody to talk honestly about, well, what does it mean to live as a celibate over a lifetime and still be joyful, happy, and find relationships that are still intimate without being physically intimate. And that's important for everybody, right? Even for married couples. And the reason this is so important to talk about because it's biblical, first of all, and, and if you look at church history, um, you know, this goes back to ancient biblical history, a lot, you know, Moses uh, was in the wilderness, but Elijah the prophet, you know, then you have John the Baptist, you have Paul, but what happened was when the Reformation happened in the 1500s, it was always monasticism in church history, always, but when the Reformation happened in the 1500s, there was political dynamics going on in Europe at that time. They closed every monastery, closed them all, shut it all down, and so at that point, uh, Protestant, the Protestant church, unlike the Eastern Orthodox Church in the eastern part of the world and the Roman Catholic Church has, a, has, a, has an interplay of celibates as well as marrieds in their, in their spirituality. The Protestant Church shut out celibacy. Now it's coming back within the Protestant Church hundreds of years later. It's very important. That's why we want you to be exposed 
to, in a sense, the fullness of scripture and the fact that there is a place for single celibacy, like a Rosie, but she was raised in an Indian Protestant church, mm -hmm. which you know, didn't, have, didn't talk about this as well. So now, just for a moment before we go on here, you're, you're, what was it like for your family that you were leaving being a professional lawyer, uh, getting rid of your money, uh, choosing, you know, poverty, see celibacy, going to this monastery. How did that, how did you do that? How did that work out for you and your family? Because we have a lot of immigrants in this room. Your parents came here so their kids would get the American dream. Yeah, I mean, you basically said it right there, right? I'm raised from an immigrant family. Becoming a lawyer was not just a, my accomplishment. This is my family's accomplishment. So when I said that I was leaving my work as a lawyer to do God knows what, that w caused a reaction in my family as well. Um, thankfully, I think my family knew that um, my relationship with God was a primary commitment, not only to my family, but also to me. And so there was a sense of some openness, like, uh, okay, we don't know what you're going to do, but we, we can support you in that you believe that you're, call it, that you're following God by leaving your work as a lawyer. Now, I spent 10 years of my life working toward becoming a lawyer. So, you know, three years of law school, seven years of being a, a trial lawyer. So it wasn't a light thing to leave, and it wasn't a light thing to leave for my family, too, because I was the first daughter of this Indian family, and it means something that, you know, that we're, all of their children are professionals. So, and then, so there's that, and then also the celibacy was another thing my family has to walk through with me. I'm not going to be the child that will give them grandchildren. I'm not, and for immigrants, I mean, come on, that's a really big deal. Our parents came here to give us a better life, and they remind us of that all the time. So there's an obligation, you know, to, to succeed and to have a family and to survive for the sake of the generations that came before that sacrificed for us. So. My choice to go to the monastery is a, is a family challenging dynamic, not only for the family that's come to the States, but also the generations before that wonder about this decision. So it is a journey, not a single person's journey, but a whole family's journey of, of being in relationship with the monastery and that very countercultural counter-immigrant Probably force. applies to all of us in this room in different ways, doesn't it? Absolutely. You know, the yeah. great challenge of honoring our parents, let following God's will for us. So let's, let's go for a minute to, um, let, let's go to your schedule. Just briefly take us through a, a normal day um, at the monastery. Okay. So the monastic community schedule that you're seeing up there is how every day basically plays out at the monastery. And it's meant to reflect St. Benedict's uh, principle of ora et labora, prayer and work. So you, say that we, you see that we begin our day together in centering prayer, which is a silent prayer at 7.35 a.m. Right, tell them when you, what time you get up to start. Well, so most of us are up by 5, 5.30, right? Because we have to get up, we have to do our normal breakfast routine, but we also have some time for personal time in scripture and meditation early in the morning. And Wait, Rosie, doesn't... But can't we count morning prayer as your quiet time? And it sounds like, like you're getting up before the... There's a lot of prayer on that list. A lot of prayer on that and list. So like, but you're getting up for personal prayer before the list. And I do that. I mean, I, I can't speak for my sisters because I, th I think there's flexibility in, in how people yeah. use their time. But for me, because so much of our time is spent together at the monastery, I really need some time in solitude by myself before I start kind of coming into the daily prayer with everybody. So that's definitely, and that was part of my rhythm here in New York too, is I was an earlier morning, morning person with scripture and meditation. Everybody has their way of doing this, but it's very, very important, especially when you're living in community, to find that time, uh, that little place where you are alone with God. Can I, can I just pause, because I know we won't come back to this. So that means, say you come into church on Sunday. So I got, I, got, I got God covered for Sunday, you follow me? I'm showing up to new life. But it's, it's, it is important, monastery are here, yeah. that we're all cultivating our personal relationship with Jesus alone, as well as we're functioning as a community, you know, in small groups and classes and worship like this. So, but now take us through and explain centering prayer right. as we start so, the day. So, right, we've got the time in solitude that I'm not counting in the schedule. And then centering prayer is 7.35 a.m. We're together, we're silent for about 20 minutes. And then we go into morning prayer, which is a sung and chanted prayer where we pray the scriptures together. So it's the Psalms, and then we sing a hymn and do some prayers Wait, stop, together. Wait, tell them how you, 
how you deal with the song. You pray this, this whole 150 psalms. How often? So we do a five-week rotation. So within five weeks, we do the 150 psalms as well as various other scriptures. So in our particular um, daily office, we also do uh, some New Testament readings and canticles and such. And before we go on, just tell me, you said you had a, a deep impact it's had on you for three years. You've been doing that, praying the 150 psalms every five weeks. And then you've got some of your other sisters who've been doing that for... Oh, for, yeah, 50, 60 years. I mean, I'm like the baby in the community, right? I just, I just joined. But if you saw the picture of my sisters. The, they're, yeah, 85 years old, 75 years old, and 60-something years old. And they've, they've lived the monastic life for far longer than I have. And, and the oldest, 85, has been there for, I think, 63 years now, 62, 63 years of vowed monastic life. So. Rosie said to me, could you imagine praying the Psalms, the entire 150, every five weeks for 63 years? Like, wow. Yeah. Like what that would do to you. Okay, take it away. <laughs> My goodness. It does things to you. <laughs> I was like, um, so morning prayer at 8 a.m., then we do a chapter meeting, which is just the community meeting together, and we just talk about what the day is going to look like, who are our guests going to be, what kind of work do we have to look forward to together. Not only is that a time to be able to kind of check in with one another, but it's also a time to get on the same page, um, and so that we're all working on the same things during the day, and we know where everybody else is going to be during the day. And then we, after chapter meeting, we go and do our work, whatever that is for the day, from 9 to 11.30 a.m. Then we stop and we come to midday prayer at 11.45. Then we all go to lunch together at noon, and then when we're done with lunch, we finish the dishes, we go back to work. Work to about 1 to 4 p.m. And then we're back for prayer again in the same oratory at 4.30 p.m., and then we end with silent prayer, centering prayer for another 20 minutes, and then we all head up to dinner together. And that's how every day looks at the monastery. Just you're aware, we are quite Benedictine at New Life Fellowship, and so we actually encourage what we call daily offices, which comes out of the rule of St. Benedict. And, and if you've been through the Emotionally Spirituality course or Relationships course, the big thrust of those courses is trying to help us, we're all active here, to get a rhythm of stopping to be with Jesus uh, two, three, four times a day. But obviously it's a lot more difficult for us, Rosie. We're not living in a community in the same place. We're all scattered. So let's talk about the sunflower for a moment and how that's worked out for you and and uh, what that looks like in the choice even for you to be at the monastery and for us here. I've used this image before and it's one that I, I feel like it keeps coming back to me. So on the prairies out where I live now, there are all of these sunflowers out on the grounds. And when you see them, it's just, one, it's just beautiful. But the other thing is I started contemplating them on their own and I started doing a little bit of learning about the sunflower. Um, so one of the things that really surprised me is that I learned that sunflowers can have roots that are up to six feet deep. And so those stalks that get almost as tall as me, maybe sometimes taller, not only do they have these long stalks, but they have this long root system that keeps it stable and, and rooted down in the ground. Then it kind of grows up into this tall shaft and this beautiful sunflower that if you watch it during the day, it, it sort of moves and orients itself toward the light. For me, it's, a, it's an image that kind of captures what the monastic life has done for me in these three years and continues, I hope, to do for me, which is to keep me deeply rooted in tradition and in scripture and in community and relationships, but also able to grow, move, change, orient myself toward the light. Um, and so throughout the day, the orarium, the hours, the way that we spend our time calls me back to this image of the sunflower, which is both stable, but also able to move into the light throughout the day. And what would you say about the sunflowers that are dried up on the right side there? Yeah, so I mean, I want to be careful because the sunflower has a, a natural life cycle as well, right? So, so sunflowers, when they die, they drop their seed. But when you go through the prairie, you realize that throughout the year, these plants, they live and they die, they live and they die. But that particular image of a sunflower that can't find the light or that somehow is dying because it's out of relationship. So you see those two single ones. For me, the sunflower is also part of an ecosystem. It's part of a larger whole. So not only is it just a single plant, but it's also in the earth and it has to do with the quality of the soil, the way the rain comes toward it, the way the sun is, the, whether there are weeds around it or not. The health of that plant is also 
affected by the way it's in relationship with other plants and the whole ecosystem as a whole. That sunflower really suffers when it's by itself or when it's dying um, without the light. But I do want to say that I think a sunflower also, uh, in its life cycle, has to die to be able to give it seed. So that's an important lesson for me too, is even when the commitment becomes hard or it feels like I'm on the right side of that image, on the, on the sort of darker side, there might be a point where something in me needs to die to be able to give life to something new. And so the sunflower really remains a very powerful image for me in all of its life cycles, is that we also learn that it might look really lovely at one point in the year, at another point in the year it might be kind of dried and drooping, and, and knowing that uh, spring will come again. That's, that's an important, uh, important lesson for me, even in monastic life. Good, so we'll come back to the sunflower. Let's talk about the you know, Benedictine spirituality. Oh, thank you. And uh, a couple of the core commitments that makes the rule of St. Benedict what it is. So let me just invite you, if you've never read the rule of St. Benedict, uh, it is really, it's a very small booklet, but it's very powerful. It's been around since mid-500s AD. And uh, it's considered the foundational document of Western monasticism. It's very edifying, very beautiful. Um, and uh, again, our spirituality is very much based on it here at New Life Fellowship. You can get it for free on the internet, but it's worth spending two, three bucks to get it off Amazon. Um, and worth reading. So why don't, you, why don't you talk about stability? Uh, let's talk about conversion of life and obedience. But I'd like you to actually talk about it, Rosie, not just in what you're doing there, but because we want to be sunflowers right here, okay? Mm -hmm. and, and what it means for us to, to, do the, to do each of these here and how you were working it out when you were here as a lawyer, as a member of our church, um, and then, you know, what it means for you now. Let me, let me also say that Benedictine spirituality, I know that word might sound kind of um, esoteric, but it really is... St. Benedict lived in the 5th and 6th centuries, wrote this rule because he had started uh, about a dozen monasteries. But the rule was really a meditation and is a meditation on the gospel. And what Benedict's kind of brilliance is, is distilling the gospel life into these three commitments, stability, conversion of life, and obedience. Those are the professions that I made in September and that I'm trying to live out in community, right? So stability on its most basic level is sort of staying in place. It's a stick with itness. It's a kind of the deep root image that I, that I had, not only tradition and scripture, but also the relationships in the monastery and your relationships as you live them today. Your commitments, so stability to those commitments, whether they're work commitments, family commitments, whatever they are at this moment, it's a, it's a willingness to not run away from reality. That's what stability really is. Um, and stability for a Benedictine monastery also means staying in a geographic place. So we don't move around the way that other communities might or people that have ministries that kind of take them in different places. Our ministry is right there and in the community. So that's what stability looks like for us at the monastery. And for you, it might look like being being committed to your relationships and your work and the calling that you have today um, and not running away. That's right. That's good. Now, it's interesting because even when you, when you read the rule of St. Benedict, he talks about how a lot of people in the 5th century, 6th century were running from monastery to monastery. They weren't sticking. They, they, they weren't stable. And yep. That's why he wrote about stability. And uh, really, for us, stability, you're, you're, most of your, this is, our, this is your church. That there's a stability here that we, we do have a, we do membership in New Life. A lot of churches don't even do membership anymore in the United States because nobody wants to be committed to anything. I float, I kind of, sh kind of a shopping mall consumerist thing. I don't think we quite have that thing at New Life Fellowship at all in Queens, but it's a tremendous problem for a lot of pastor friends of mine, for example, in Manhattan. Uh, you know, average lifespan of people in a person in the church is two, three years, and they're, they're moving on. And, uh, but stability very important for growth because it's those difficult times you stay with it. Okay, right. excellent. And then to balance stability so that you don't become so rigid, uh, I, I think the brilliance here is conversion of life, the second uh, vow that we make. And that is a, an openness to change, an orientation to be able to move toward that light. So if, uh, if the gospel calls you to do something radical, you're open to that. The Holy Spirit moves through your life. It's a wind that blows you somewhere that you didn't expect, that conversion of life balances the stability so that although you're rooted, you're always open to change, to being converted, to repenting, to turning around. So the two kind of, you know, there's a wonderful tension between those two in being stable but also and being rooted and 
and also being open to change. So I, I love that tension that's caught right there in, the, in those commitments. And then finally, this last one called obedience, um, which is a willingness to obey authority, to listen. Um, and when I say authority, I mean scripture, I mean Jesus. I also mean authority that's been put in your life, um, whether that's pastoral authority or even work authority, but I don't mean it to sound, and I hope it doesn't sound, because obedience can be difficult uh, to be unhealthy, because there's a distinction between unhealthy obedience and healthy obedience, and that's certainly something that Benedict was also trying to address um, in, in the society that he was living in. And it's interesting because at New Life Fellowship, if you think about it, every week we're here and everything we're doing at New Life is, is talking about conversion of life. And we, we want, you know, we, have, we, we want everyone to be open to the Holy Spirit that even a person like Rosie, as a staff, she's on her way to the monastery, you follow me? And there's like, open for whatever God leads you to do, that you'll do it and you'll hear the voice of God. But the obedience thing's interesting too because we do have authority at New Life Fellowship. We have, we have a board of elders that, that are the, really the final authority system here at New Life. And then we have a pastoral staff and uh, then we got different levels of leadership here, but we do have a, 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 I think, a very healthy covering of authority. And I, and I would say, in general, New Life Fellowship, uh, people are incredibly responsive to authority here. And there's times I've come along someone, and I did actually to someone last week, I put my arm around them and I said, if you don't mind, for just a moment, I'd like to pull my pastoral authority card out. And I said, you are out of line on this one. And, uh, you know, it, was, it wasn't anything horrific, but it was just, you need to, you know, and her husband was trying to help her see it. And I said, I, I want to now reinforce what he's saying to you as a biblical issue, and, and he's right on. And I had to do with her actually slowing down her work because she was consumed and, and being present with her children and, and, her, and her husband. And, uh, but I, I had, I, I actually pulled out the obedience card in a good way. I think our, I think our leadership at New Lives from the Board of Elders down functions as a covering of protection, not a smothering. Bad authority smothers people and tries to control them. Good authority covers in a protecting way but wants to release people to be all they can be for God. I think New Life over the last three decades has gotten a very good balance on that and, uh, you know, very good balance. So, what, Rosie, if you, you said to me that one of the reasons you were leaving, um, you need to go to the monastery, you felt that God was taking you to a place where your roots in Jesus needed to deepen. Uh, what would you say to us here, if you were a lawyer sitting in there listening to you now, and you're hearing about deepening your roots, what counsel would you give folks here sitting about deepening my roots here, but I'm not called to go to Madison, Wisconsin and join Holy Wisdom Monastery? Right. Well, let me, let me say how I experienced that call. I mean, all of you live in New York, so you know when I start talking to you about how, how much I felt as though my life, the sort of surface level of life, the appearances, looking good, um, being professional, all those things are the things that the world sees or that people see and praise you for. And there's a lot of pressure, I think, to produce on the level of what others can see, the visible part, say, of the sunflower, right? But there's this whole root system up to six feet deep that nobody sees. And if there's a real challenge in being able to grow deep roots because there's no one that really sees it. So how do you get the kind of life that helps you develop what is unseen. For me, that meant looking at the monastery seriously, since it was a place where on the daily level, roots were being grown, and there was not as much pressure perhaps to produce on the outer, on the visible side. So for me, it was really important for me to investigate whether this was a better place for me to be able to grow the unseen spiritual life. And this is not just monastic, right? This is what all Christians are called to, is to develop a secret personal, devoted life, an alone, solitude place with God. And the monastery does, for me, really help do that. But each of us are called to develop that secret place with God, uh, however that might look for each of you. We've talked about monasteries of the heart and this image of being able to carry the monastery with you wherever you go. Um, and whether that's a space in your own house, whether that's a time that you consider sacred, there is a place that is sacrosanct, that where there are borders, where that inner life gets developed. 
And moving toward that as a serious and committed Christian, there's a lot of um, challenge to doing that. I mean, that's just a, a, a real issue for people today. How do, how do, we, how do we nurture that space where you and God develop? How do we get that soil to, uh, to, go, to help the roots to go down deep? Um, and for each of you, that might look different. So some of you, that might mean cultivating a practice in the evenings. Um, for some of you, that might mean cultivating practice in the morning and getting up earlier. For others of you, it might mean making regular retreats to, say, a monastery like mine, where you could um, come and, and pray for a while or get a chance to be able to look at your life with a, a little more space. Uh, and that's what retreat houses offer and have offered to the world for centuries. So monasteries are a place to be able to come away, reassess, and then re-enter your life in a way that helps you to be able to, to make decisions maybe slightly from a different way. So for each of us, it looks different, but I think it's important to figure out what helps you grow your roots, what relationships, what communities, what commitments help you grow deep roots. You realize how radical this is for yes. New York culture to, I mean, folks, I'm looking at folks like, who work, I know work, you know, 10 hour days, commuting their home at seven o'clock at night, they're up at, you know, six o'clock in the morning, the kids exhausted by, by you know, seven o'clock, trying to manage a, a, mar a marriage, a family, singles as well, I think some of your lifestyles I know. You're talking about something so incredibly focused. I think that's the kind of focus it takes to be able to develop a deep, flourishing life with Christ. And I'm not talking about um, spending hours in you know, prayer, you know what I mean? Like, I I'm talking about, like, I mean, you've suggested this, the two minutes of silence. I think that's a radical commitment in our, in our culture. And yet that may be the monastery of your heart right now, is two minutes of silence to be able to care for your family, um, to be truly present in your relationships, to be truly present to your church community, and to truly make decisions from the deep place of your heart as opposed to the tugging influences of the world which are calling for your attention at every moment of the day. When is the time when you can come back to center? When is the time when your life with Christ begins to really um, develop? And what practices in your life help that to happen? That's a question that every committed Christian, and I, I'm not giving any Christian in here a pass. Um, we, we all have to answer that for ourselves. That's great. And uh, talk about community and why, you know, we're a community here, but obviously we're not living together in the same house uh, like you are. How would you see our community as a whole at New Life? How, do, how, how does that work uh, in a sense, in a diluted sense to what you're doing in a monastery in such an intensity, uh, what would you recommend to us? I think I've begun to really see how important community is for um, long-term growth. Um, and I, I mean, our families are really primary commitments. Our friendships are also really important commitments. But our church community, I mean, have you guys looked around at yourselves? It's unbelievable the gift that new life brings to the world. I live in the Midwest. And I don't think I fully realize um, just how Caucasian white it is until I come back to New York. And I mean, I looked up at the choir up here and saw, I mean, it's just enough to bring a person to tears. Like, this is a community which the world needs to see. And it's a community we need to tap into more because in this world of greater polarization where we are having a harder and harder time being able to connect and talk with each other with respect and with dignity, here you are in this community modeling that for the world. And when you talk about emotionally healthy spirituality, you're not just talking about that for one another and for your families and friendships, but you're talking about that for this church community and, and that for the world. I mean, this is, this is a mission. I don't, I don't know how fully you understand that, but if I can bring you that lesson from the monastery, just being here with you this morning fires me up in a way to go back to my monastery and to be able to pray and work with the women that I'm called to be with. You know? So hopefully that's the kind of way that our community affects one another in that as, as we are responding to Christ wherever we're called to be, we're also calling out to one another to do that more deeply wherever you are. So you're doing that for me. I hope I'm doing that for you, where you're feeling that wherever you are today, you're going to either make some changes or you're gonna be more stable, you know, or you're gonna 
be, you're going to find where, what obedience means for you today. Hopefully that's what this conversation does. And hopefully that's what we model as a community together. And how, talk about, in a sense, you have a hyper view of dealing in community with faults and eccentricities mm -hmm. of other people. And how do I stay with it when I, I mean, we, we joke around, those have been around New Life a long time. We always joke around about how many times we all wanted to quit and run uh, out of the place. And uh, you experienced that as well at the monastery, in a, in a sense, in a, in a very acute fashion. So what will be your counsel to us about what do we do when we, we're with people at our own fellowship that are driving us crazy and uh, we want to run away? That's a very real question, right? Because, I mean, at the monastery, it's not as though I've chosen my, the women that I live with, right? And I, and I live very intimately with them. You saw what my schedule is like, so we're face-to-face -face a lot of the day. Um, and I do think, though, that uh, developing relationships with people that are not people that you would normally like or be attracted to or, you know, have an affinity with, it develops a kind of a maturity and a real recognition. We call each other brothers and sisters in Christ, right? We understand ourselves to be children of God. What that means is that we are family, and it's easy to forget that uh, family gets on our nerves, <laughs> and that's real, right? But the relationships to which we are called in family develop us. God has called us to the family that we have come out of. I mean, I know for some of us that's a real cross, but it's also our salvation, right? Because these people, in whatever way, are teaching us how to love are showing us how to love in hard circumstances. And Jesus says this too, right? It's easy to love your friends, to love your enemy, to love someone who's behaving in a way that feels like they're an obstacle to you. Well, that's love, and that's what Jesus calls us to. And so it's a gift, these folks that are eccentrics, as you call them, um, and, and they will never not be there. I will tell you that. Every community has the eccentric, the hard person to love, and recognize that that is part of your stability. That is part of what being in relationship together is. And if we really believe what this gospel says, that we are one family, we are brothers and sisters, we are children of the same God, then we are committed to working out our faults. And to seeing them in myself, for goodness sake. <laughs> That's another thing. We so, see them. We love you when yeah, we see them. Yeah, there we go. We <laughs> uh, Rosie, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, ha I had a... Um, a, f a new lifer, a long-time new lifer, recently moved, and he was telling me about uh, uh, he sees such a stark difference of the church he's visiting right now, and just in terms of, well, he's actually a part of it for one of his kids, and he says it's just so different. There's not an expectations of a root system. He's gifted in the business world, you know, he's accomplished, and he says, you're just putting leadership, which is fine. Um, but at New Life, he said, I never realized how much there's a consistent demand from the elders, or you're not going to get an el be an elder if you don't have a root system um, at New Life Fellowship. But in this church, I, they'd make me an elder in a minute because I'm good corporately, but I knew I'd be dangerous if I was, ever was an elder at New Life Fellowship, you know, and everybody else knew it too. Um, but I think it's one of the gifts of our church is the exposure. We, 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 need, we so desperately need an exposure to monastics. Uh, you're now Sister Rosie, right? That's your title, Sister Rosie. I love that. Um, and it was Aquinas that wrote in the 1200s that human society needs people that are contemplatives, that are called to a life, a level of a life of prayer, like a Rosie. And I said to one friend walking out, she's giving away everything, all her you know, IRA, money. I said, and you struggle when that offering plate comes by? I said, but it puts a yardstick of the fact of God calls us to be unattached to everything. You know, our struggle with identity and, and our families having expectations of us over and against God's will sometimes, the clash there, and you look at someone like a, you know, a monk, you say, oh my gosh, you know, in a life of prayer and community, it gives, I think, it, I really believe it offers us a gift. And that's why over, over years we've tried to bring in Franciscans and Trappists and people like Rosie for all of us to step back and say, okay now, what does it mean to be a rich young ruler? To leave everything and follow Jesus for me. And what are the implications of that? So, Rose, as we close here, why don't you, any final words you want to give about some, uh, uh, the riches of monasticism for us here in New York City day to day, whether it's prayer, commitment, celibacy, any final words you want to give to us here? I, I think I just want to say something to that, that last point that you made, so, and I want to bring it back to the scripture that we were reading about Mary and Martha, right? Um, 
One of the things that I think recently I've been seeing about that passage is how Mary and Martha are related to one another. They're both sisters, right? And it's interesting that just now, since I made my profession, I mean, folks have been starting to call me Sister Rosie, right? And so there's this sense for me that that scripture is also reminding me that Mary and Martha are family to one another. They are siblings to each other. So this, um, we often, and I do this too, uh, sort of um, hold Martha at some distance to Mary's spirituality. But the real message for that passage for me that's been coming to me is that these two women are sisters and they belong to the same house. And their real challenge is to be able to see each other's gifts and to integrate them into one whole, right? So both the contemplative and the active are related to one another, are integrated with one another in a fully functioning household. And that's something that Jesus is trying to call both Mary and Martha to, when he says, Martha, Martha, you're worried and you're, you're distracted, but you're not looking at Mary. Mary, you're sitting at my feet, but you're also not seeing Martha and her struggle right now to be able to keep this house together, to put food on the table. So there's a real, there's a real necessity of us seeing one another, celibates and married, monastics and people that live in the world. Uh, pastors and people in the congregation, friends, wives and husbands, spouses. We need to look at each other. We are in relationship to one another, in one household with Christ as our head. So that is one of the things that, uh, that I would say, and that takes time. So I, you know, the other major lesson that I'm learning from the monastery is that you may want to grow deep roots. Well, that, that takes more than just your desire. There are all kinds of other things that are at play um, when you want to grow deep roots. There are some things that are within our control. There are other things that we surrender and we pray for because those, those roots are not entirely under our control to grow. And recognizing the slow, slow progress of the spiritual life and giving ourselves enough slack to be able to see the progress when it happens and being able to hear when others tell us you're making progress and to be able to really take that in and be encouraged by that and continue to grow um, into our relationships, our commitments, and our lives together. That's what I'd want to offer. Let's give Rosie a hand. Thank you. <laughs> Worship team, come on forward. Thank you. <laughs> uh, let me recommend a, a, a very good book uh, called St. Benedict on the Freeway. Uh, a Rule of Life for the 21st Century by Corinne Ware, a professor at a seminary. It's an older book, but it's really rich in breaking down how do I live out some of these riches on a freeway like we all live on here at New Life. So I, I recommend that to you. And uh, I'm going to close with this. So, Michael, when we finish the service, we're going to come back to the sunflower because I want, I want to invite you all to stand with me we go back to worship. And I think the great invitation is for us, we want to be this, right? We want to orient our lives towards Jesus that we flourish versus uh, that. So with that, let's, uh, let's worship together. For such a wonderful word this morning. You know, God loves the world, and he so loved the world, he sent his only son. And, and God's put you in, in the world. And we're, you know, I look at around you, got folks in all times of different professions. You know, some of you are students, others of you are, uh, you know, you're electricians, and some of you are in sanitation and police officers, others of you are lawyers and doctors in our midst and sales, and some of you are in the health profession, some of you are a lot of teachers and principals here, and all kinds of things. We're scattered, moms at home, dads at home, and uh, we are to love the world with the love of Jesus, and for that we need a root system. At the same time, uh, there's an invitation today uh, from God for us to be uh, like those sunflowers. And we're also not to love the world in, in the negative sense of the world, the, the values of the world. And First John says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And we just sang about that truth, that we love the world, but we're not attached to it. We love our families, we love our work, we love enjoying beautiful things that money can buy, but our love and life is Jesus. And the invitation, I believe God's coming to all of us is, in what way might you be wilting right now? Like a sunflower, because your life is not oriented sufficiently towards Christ. And it's gonna be different for every one of us in this room, what that looks like. For Rosie, it actually meant 
making that step to, to move to Wisconsin for a season and be part of that monastery. And, and what, what does it mean for you? What's it mean for me? You get up every day and you try to say, how do I have a rhythm in life? How, how do I do this small group thing? You know, do I go to this class that Rich is doing on prayer in a couple of weeks, which I highly recommend uh, as one of the classes in August? You know, what, what, what are some steps for me that I can get deeper roots in Christ? And there's a question for all of us. And so I want to invite you as we close, if you're feeling wilted, if you're sensing in your spirit, parts of your soul are dried out. Uh, I want to invite you to come for prayer. That's what a community is for. We pray for each other. We, we support each other. We all have our seasons. We're on the ground and we're not doing well. And we need each other. We come for prayer. And you may just want to come for prayer. Just kind of, it's coming as an act of surrender uh, that you need to do before you close out what God's doing in you today. That they're, they're, you're not done quite yet. And you need to come forward as, a, as an expression of, I'm turning to you, God. And I'm turning away from some things maybe in the world that are not best for me. They may not even be sin, but they're not for you now. And for you is to turn towards him and something new that he may have for you for the next season. Uh, so our prayer teams will be here. So let me invite you to open your hands up like this towards heaven, and we're going to close and be dismissed uh, before God. You know, take a, take a nice deep breath. And, you know, the word for breath in Genesis 1 is the word for spirit, breath and spirit. And as you breathe, you know, spirit of God gives you life and invites him to fill you as you breathe in and breathe out all that's not of him. And just quietly say to the Lord, I'm open, Lord. My hand, my, my palms are open upward towards heaven, Lord. And like that sunflower, I, I want to look, Lord, to you now and I open up my will to you. So may the Lord bless you and may the Lord keep you. And may his face shine on you. May, may you actually feel the warmth of the love of his face that he sees you right where you are, wherever you are in your journey, and he loves you utterly, totally, and absolutely. And may, by the Holy Spirit, may like a river flow into you now, that it would flow into the deep parts of your soul, the deep parts of your mind. May God heal you, deliver you, cut chains off you, and may God give you grace now to rise up and leave this place in the name of Jesus and becoming the man, the woman he's called you to be. And may you flourish like a sunflower. <clears throat> and may you be a gift to all those you touch as you leave this place. And so I bless you in Christ's name. And everybody said, amen. Thank you, everybody. God bless you.